subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for conversations with veterinarians, oncologists, rehab therapists, and other experts discussing amputation for dogs and cats. Find more info, helpful care tips, and a free gift at tripods.com slash radio. He's got a few miles left, knock on wood. He's a three-legged dog, but he's still good. Thank you for tuning in to Tripod Talk Radio, where we're spreading the word that it's better to hop on three legs than limp on four. Hosted by Jim and Renee and Wyatt Ray of the Tripods Blogs community at tripods.com, Jerry's place for canine amputees and their people. Hello, and thank you for listening to Tripod Talk Radio. Pet parents coping with amputation for their cats, and anyone in veterinary practice, will want to stay tuned today. We are talking about managing feline amputation pain before, during, and after surgery. At the 2018 Western Vet Conference, we had the pleasure of meeting our amazing guest, who is an expert on this subject. Stephen Sital, RVT, has all sorts of other initials after his name, but in short, he is a renowned veterinary anesthetist, exotic animal specialist, educator, speaker, and inventor of the Sital Flow Practivet blood filter, who was granted the 2017 California Registered Veterinary Technician of the Year Award. <laughs> well, he is incredibly knowledgeable and honestly, just really fun to talk to you. So let's discuss how to help manage amputation pain in cats. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Welcome to Tripod Talk. Hello, and thank you. Hi, Stephen. It's Renee here. I'm so glad we bumped into you at the conference because you have an amazing background that I'm, I'm <laughs> Dying to hear more about. Um, can you uh, tell us how you got into the, the veterinary field and why you chose this line of work? Oh boy! Well, I kind of I, I got into it on purpose and then kind of fell into it pretty heavy. Um, when I was in high school, still, I actually wanted to be a human nurse and I wanted to get exposure to medical procedures and, and being around medical things. And so, in high school, I actually took a job at a general practice in my hometown of Woodland, California, and started working as a kennel assistant. And then they started training me as a, a veterinary assistant. And then I started with human nursing school, and then we started touching people, and I was like, oh, my God, this is not what I want to do. Uh, people are, are kind of gross, uh, but, you know, I really realized that I love the science and the medicine, and I happen to really love animals, so I thought, you know what, I should do the veterinary nursing track, and uh, that's kind of how that happened. I, you know, I didn't intentionally go into veterinary medicine to be a specialist at, at, at anything, but it kind of worked out that way, and I, I love it, and I'm definitely not looking back. Awesome. That that is a, a great story about your people nursing experience. Um, well, we can tell that you're really great with animals, and um, I, I just um, I want to talk about cats today because we have so much information on tripods about dogs, and and that's how we started as a community. But um, we're just now learning about about cats' needs um, before, during, and, and after amputation, and in general, there's there's just not a whole lot of information out there uh, for uh, pain management and cats. So um, let's let's talk about that today. You know, um, we see a lot of dogs come home from amputation surgery with with a big bag of pain medications, but cats. I mean, they rarely come home with anything more than um, buprenorphine. I mean, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but um, why does it seem like? in veterinary medicine that cats are getting the, the short stick when it comes to, to pain management. And, and do you think that's changing at all? 
I absolutely agree with you. I think cats have historically gotten the, the short end of the, the rope or stick or however you want to say that phrase. But, uh, you know, I, I think the biggest misunderstanding or the biggest reason that cats aren't getting the same level of pain management compared to our dog friends is because the practitioner maybe doesn't understand uh, the pharmacology of certain drugs with cats or they cats are so good at hiding their pain and, and pretty stoic that they don't necessarily look like they're in pain. But that's that's not necessarily true. We know that cats and dogs are feeling the same level of pain um, because they're both mammals and they both have the same nociceptor system. The nociceptor system is that system that is responsible for transmitting pain signals throughout the body into the brain. So we know that cats and dogs have the same darn thing. We just don't treat it the same because there's a lack of education and lack of understanding on the practitioner side. And this is really where um, I, I, I hope that we can have the nursing staff and the pet owners be a real advocate for their pet because it is something that needs to change. I would say in general, it is changing, but it's changing very slowly. And and is that because there aren't enough specific medications that, that cats do well on? Are there not enough studies or, um, you know, or does it just come back to, like you said, like a, a lack of understanding? Yeah, the, the tricky thing with uh, cats in general is they, they do metabolize certain medications differently than dogs. Um, and we get a little bit more concerned about cats because uh, they tend to not want to eat and drink as well after anesthesia, which can also be associated with pain. Uh, they don't want to eat when they're painful. So it's this, it's this tricky balance of um, getting them to do the right thing during the healing process and um, understanding the pharmacology of certain drugs. But in general, I would say we have really good options for cats, and there's really at this point no excuse um, mm. to not provide them with appropriate pain management. That's a, yeah, I would, I love hearing that. Thank you. That's a really great statement. Now, as far as cats showing their pain, you mentioned that they are pretty, pretty good at hiding it. Um, but yeah. what are some of the things that they do tend to display? What are some of the behaviors? What can somebody look for um, if they think their cat might be in pain? Sure. So one of the big things that we see with cats is we know cats in general uh, do like to hide and, and like to have a lot of, of me time, right? Um, but if they are increasing that frequency after a, a possibly painful procedure like an amputation for sure, um, that is definitely an indication of discomfort. If the animal is not eating or drinking normally, that is a sign of discomfort. If they are not using the restroom uh, with the same frequency, that is a sign of pain. And this is going to be really shocking, but purring can also be a sign of pain. A purring does not oh. necessarily mean that they are happy all the time. We know that cats in the wild, they can purr at certain frequencies to actually heal bone, which is pretty amazing because we're trying to take some of that that nature's technology and apply it to humans and creating certain things that are creating the same frequency as a purr because it helps stimulate bone growth, which is crazy, right? Yeah. So even purring, you know, can be a sign of discomfort. Um, uh, what else is a sign of discomfort? Definitely a change in personality. If the cat's not wanting you to scratch them in the normal areas or, or be as social, those are all signs of discomfort. 
Um, and then one thing I think owners can do is I'll actually post it on my website because it will make it easier to find, but the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management has a really nice chart um, for owners on signs of pain in cats, and that's nice that's nice to have on hand, so you can be like, oh, my cat has this, this, and this. I think he might be uncomfortable. Let's talk to the vet about more pain meds or pain meds in general. And then the other thing, which, which is nice and owners can use and a lot of hospitals are using now, are called visual analog scales, and they're validated by scientific studies, um, and they're, they're akin to that smiley face chart that you see when you go to the doctors and the doctor says, hey, which smiley face are you? Like, is this minimal to no pain or is it severe pain? So it's kind of like that smiley face chart for cats specifically. And then more recently, we even have um, a published paper now, and it's coming out of the lab animal world, and it's actual pictures of cats' faces. It's another visual analog scale of cats' faces when they're uncomfortable. It shows their ear position, their eye position, uh, how, how squinty their eyes look, what their pupils look like. So it looks at all of that. And I think that's just a really great tool for owners to have because you can see, you can actually see uh, what a painful cat would look like. Oh, my gosh. When is that uh, tool coming out? We would love to have access. Oh, it's out already. Oh, it's it out is. already. Okay. And, and I will gladly put on my website for anyone to download, um, but Great. it is it is out, yeah. And and what is your website, Stephen? We'll, we'll say it a few times, but go ahead. Yeah, my website is www.stephensital.com. And, and I'll put it in, uh, yeah, I'll put it in my resources section so owners can download it. And they actually have the same thing for dogs with the exception of the photographs of the faces. That's where cats actually have the, the leg up compared to dogs. Oh, okay, yeah. Actually, the photos is the one I was thinking of. The the IVAPM one, um, we actually do have a, a link to that, but put it on your website, too, so people have more yeah, access absolutely. to it. But, yeah, the photos would be really interesting to see because I personally know that I, I had no idea what pain in dogs looked like until we looked back on our own dog after he recovered from amputation surgery and we saw the before pictures of him and we're just blown away. We put him side by side and went, Oh my God, look at his ears. Look at how he's yeah. standing. This is crazy. Yeah. How could we not see this? Yeah. Um, and I mean, dogs are a little bit different than cats too, because they still want to appease you um, uh-huh. even after a surgery where cats are kind of like, I'm, I'm not as interested in appeasing you after I have my leg <laughs> amputated. So <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. definitely differences. Definitely, definitely. Now, um, just uh, real, real briefly. Now, you have worked with some pretty big cats in your past. Right? Something yes. I didn't mention in the beginning. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, well, uh, I do per diem at a couple of zoos and have certainly worked with cats and tigers. Or, wow. I'm sorry, uh, tigers and lions. They're all cats. <laughs> and what's what's interesting about cats in general, whether they're a big exotic species or a domesticated species like the one at home, is they're pretty genetically conserved. So even these these cats that we have at home that get renal disease or get these these common conditions that we see in pet cats, our big wild animal cats get those same things and we have to treat them the same way and we give them the same medications. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. They're they're so well genetically conserved that they, they suffer from the same conditions. 
Holy cow. And I thought we could uh, blame all of the domestic uh, illnesses on, on kibble. So it's not necessarily <laughs> no, always tied no. into that bag of ketchup, right? No. I mean, the obesity oh. thing is certainly uh, something that is our fault. But other than that, a lot of those disease processes are, are displayed in, in our wild animal um, cat species. And do, do the uh, wild animals, do they show pain similarly to, to domestic cats? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, like I, I mentioned with dogs, they still have that appeasement behavior. Uh, they still ha- kind of have that, that pack mentality. I don't want to get too crazy because I don't want to say that the whole alpha dog thing. I, I'm not a firm believer in that type of, of behavior for, for mm-hmm. dogs. But for cats in particular, um, you know, domestication has changed a little bit of their behavior, but in general, it it is still the same as like our our, our lions and our tigers and our cougars and and whatnot. Wow, well, you you certainly know all about cats. We're so happy to have you here. Um, <laughs> now, now let's let's talk about managing surgery pain for for our domestic cats. Um, how does the, the pre- and, and post-amputation pain management protocols, how do they differ for cats as opposed to dogs, um, both in the clinic and then later on when you get them home? Um, what, are, what are the differences there? Sure. So in reality, there shouldn't be any differences. Um, okay. <laughs> there, there really shouldn't be any differences. I would say the major difference that we see in cats compared to dogs is the veterinarian being more hesitant to use a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And the reason they get more weary about using a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory is because cats, when they go under anesthesia, they can, they can get a little hypotensive at times. So that means our blood pressure gets low. And if our blood pressure gets low, we're impacting our kidneys. So we don't want to put extra stress on our kidneys. And when we give a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories create these little things called prostaglandins, and the prostaglandins keep your, your kidneys and your GI healthy. And so if we knock those out and we have a hypotensive event, we're putting our, our cat at more risk or potential for risk of mm-hmm. side effects when they wake up. So I think that's the big scare. But if you have a really good anesthetist um, and a practitioner that's using a balanced anesthesia protocol, that shouldn't be as big of a, of a concern um, because we can maintain that blood pressure better. Um, but one thing that uh, we can certainly do and, and all, all cat owners should really uh, advocate for is the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories in their cats um, in the preoperative or immediately post-operative period uh, because inflammation is pain. And obviously when you're taking off a, a limb from anything, there's going to be a lot of inflammation there. And if we can cut that inflammation before it really happens, it's going to be in our 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 pet's best interest, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And so what are some of the, like the brand names that we as pet parents might be familiar with um, as far as the NSAIDs? Sure. So for the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, a common one that we, we see in practice is um, we see meloxicam. Uh, there is a, a, a drug that I kind of prefer in our cats uh, because it works a little bit more locally than systemically, which adds to its safety profile, and that's called Onsior. And the, the generic name for that is called Um 
Um, and that is a that is a drug that is going to work more at the local site of inflammation rather than systemically. So we have less concern about uh, renal or, or liver or GI concerns. Um, and the box dose right now actually has it labeled for three days, but off-label and, and validated by some, some scientific studies that I believe was published in the Journal of um, Internal Medicine, Veterinary Internal Medicine, they have studies going out 28 days with this particular drug and showing no um, detrimental effects. So that is one I definitely like to lean on. Um, yeah, um, and whenever we have a cat that is going to be on NSAIDs, it's really important that they're eating and drinking normally. Hydration is going to be super important to keep uh, those kidneys running normally, especially when we're giving something like an NSAID. Are there any special considerations for um, senior cats or, or diabetic cats when it comes to the NSAIDs? Uh, for for older or diabetic cats, again, it's just going to be that hydration, keeping them well hydrated while they're on the drugs, and then definitely give them the benefit of an NSAID. Um, when we have animals that are stressed out or painful, pain is is a form of stress and you release more cortisol, um, it can definitely affect uh, the diabetes process or disease. Um, it can make it worse. It can exacerbate it temporarily. So that's not something we necessarily want. Um, and the release of cortisol in itself um, is also going to del- delay wound healing um, and um, can even suppress the immune system. So it's in our patient's best it's interest to provide really good pain management and multimodal. And when I say multimodal, that means multiple different drugs, not just one drug like you mentioned Mm -hmm. um, at a high dose. And what's nice about mixing different drugs or or doing polypharmacy is when you mix different drugs, some of these drugs play really nice together and they can potentiate each other. So it makes them work better and we can use them at lower dosages, which is going to Uh, get rid of some of the negative side effects we would see with a big, huge dose of buprenorphine or a big, huge dose of a particular non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Oh, wow. That is really interesting. So what what are some of the combinations that, um, that you tend to see in practice? Yeah. So one of the big things is when you use an NSAID appropriately, you can decrease an opioid dose by almost 40%. That's a huge, huge decrease in how much opioid we're giving that cat. And as you know, just like in people with chronic opioid use or high doses of opioids, it can slow your GI tract and it can it can create some constipation, which isn't necessarily fun when you maybe have a back leg that was just removed and you're yeah. trying to learn how to squat again, right? Um, we can... Um, uh, get them to eat a little bit better because when they're on NSAIDs, or not NSAIDs, excuse me, opioids, um, they may feel a little bit nauseous from those, in, from those opioids in particular. Um, other things that we see work really well together are things called benzodiazepines. So those are things like uh, Valium or midazolam. And when you mix those with uh, an opioid, we can significantly decrease the opioid dose, dose as well. And is that because it, it mellows the cat out? Because that's what I think of when I think of a drug like that. It certainly mellows them out, um, but it also um, it, it, it works as a um, – if you think of an opioid molecule and it's in the body – and then you think about adding a benzodiazepine, the benzodiazepine molecule acts almost like a shepherd for that opioid molecule and helps it get to that particular receptor it's supposed to work at better. Cool. Cool. 
Wow, I am learning so much from you. Oh my gosh. Um, so now, how how can we know that our vet is practicing really good pain management like this? Because normally, you know, we go along as pet parents, and our our pets are fine, and we take them for their checkups, and then wham, we get hit with with news that their leg has to come off, or they need some other type of major surgery. Sure. And all of a sudden, we are forced to figure out this whole pain thing. We don't know anything about the drugs. We don't know what our vet is right. really using during surgery. I mean, how do we know that our clinic is going to use the best and safest pain management methods? Sure. So, you know, as, as kind of a, a pain uh, management enthusiast, there's a couple of things that I like to really tell owners um, and personal friends, you know, when they ask me, oh, hey, I'm, I'm going to go have um, surgery on my, my, my pet. What should I look for or be concerned about? And the biggest thing we have to be concerned about right now, especially in cats and especially since we're in an opioid crisis and a lot of clinics are struggling to get appropriate yeah. opioids for this big type of procedure, is to stay away from from a drug called butorphanol. Oh. Yeah, butorphanol is a common drug that we use in veterinary medicine. It is a, a pain medication, but it's probably only lasting for like 30 minutes to maybe two hours once we give it. Um, And the animal can still look sedate even after that two-hour period, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're getting the benefit of pain management. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, more mature veterinarians or or older or gray-haired veterinarians (laughs) still use this pretty commonly, and it's really not a good pain management drug. So if your animal is going to have surgery, make sure they get a really good opioid, something like methadone or hydromorphone. Um, or fentanyl even if they can get their hands on it during the procedure and after the procedure, not butorphanol. Oh, that is, the that other is thing, really good to know. Yeah, the other thing that I would really advocate for any pet owner um, to ask about is uh, using local anesthetics um, at the site. So using things like lidocaine or bubivacaine um, after and before they're taking that leg off. Uh, lidocaine and bubivacaine is the only pain management drug that we have on the shelf that completely blocks the pain signal. When we give things like opioids or NSAIDs um, or gabapentin, um, it's only dulling the pain, but things like lidocaine and bubivacaine are the ones that completely stop that sensation altogether. So that's pretty profound. And if they use them correctly, uh, we can really minimize um, how much systemic drugs or oral drugs we have to give. The, the animal when it wakes up. Um, there is a company called Aritana, and they create a bubivacaine mm-hmm. that um, is encapsulated in a liposome, and that, that block lasts for three days once you inject it. So that oh, cat can cool. feel pain-free for three days. It is off-label at this point. Um, right now, it's, it's only labeled for dogs for CCL repair, but there is going to be a cat label released hopefully this year, but I would say out of personal experience and talking with other anesthesiologists and anesthetists, we're using an off-label for cats all the time, and we're seeing great success with it. That, that is pretty cool, and I'm going to guess, but I think you're referring to the one that I know as Noceta. Is that it? Noceta is it, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, when we first heard about that, we were so excited. Um, Dr. Mike Petty told us about it, and yeah. yeah, we have a little blog post about it for dogs, but I can't wait till we can start announcing it, that it's being used for Yeah. Humans. 
It yeah. is a game changer. Definitely. And, you know, and one of the things that, that I, I get really excited about is because it means that you're not shoving a whole bunch of pills down your pet's mouth as soon as they come home from the hospital when they're already exactly. pretty dopey and stressed out. So let's, let's talk about that. Um, what, are, what are some of your best tricks if we have to give those, those pills to, to a cat? What, what are some of the things you as, as a nurse get to do that actually work? Right. So the biggest thing is if we can get liquids, that that is always easier. Um, and a lot of pharmacies will compound different pain medications so that we can give it in a liquid form because pills can certainly be tricky for cat owners. And, and you know, the other trick as a, as a technician uh, that I do a lot is I do manual pilling and it's, it's, really sticking that pill in the back of the cat's throat and pushing it down there with a finger, and it's really quick. But cats, unlike dogs, um, are really good at swallowing things the first time compared really? to our dog friends that, you know, can hide things in the back of the mouth and somehow yeah. get it up. I'm not really sure how they do it. But um, our cat friends, when it's, it's done appropriately, they usually take it down in the first swallow. So that's really nice. And, and that's where asking for a skilled technician to come in and show you how to pill your cat is going to be really, really beneficial. Oh, the yeah. Other... So many people are terrified of that. So, so thank yeah. you for that tip. Yeah. The other thing that um, pet owners can do is, when appropriate is, is ask for drugs that are long-acting and injectable. So there's a drug on the market called Cymbidol, and it's uh, a buprenorphine. And instead of giving it under the tongue or in the, the cheek like we would uh, normally, it's one injection and it lasts for 24 hours. Oh, and wow. Yeah, so it kind of alleviates having to give three doses of the buprenorphine a day with this one injection. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is really cool. These drugs are getting better all the time. Um, Real quick, just to backtrack, you had mentioned um, about the uh, the opioid uh, shortage that that's happening. Is that in full swing right now, or, or clinics having? It is. It is in. It is in full swing. It is. Oh. It is pretty horrible. You know, I speak all around the country, um, and I just listen to these. These some of them have nothing, and I'm just like, this oh is God. so, so, so horrible. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty dramatic. But I think the nice thing that's coming from it is it's forcing veterinarians to reevaluate their their pain management protocols and really update it. Um, one thing in particular for amputations, because we're cutting some major nerves, is it can set your your animal up for what's called neuropathic pain. And neuropathic pain is is also discussed or or, or um, described as something like a phantom limb pain or the animal keeps chewing at their the amputation site because that nerve is still sending signals. And there are certain drugs that we have in practice that can really help decrease um, that type of pain. And, and one of them um, is, is ketamine. Uh, ketamine is, is a great analgesic, and it's great for anesthesia because when we add ketamine to an anesthetic protocol, uh, protocol, we can decrease how much gas anesthesia we're giving, which is going to increase our blood pressure, keep our blood pressure as normal as possible, but it's also going to keep the, the special receptors, the NMDA receptor, uh, cool, calm, and collected so that we hopefully don't get into those wind-up states or, or neuropathic states. 
ketamine. And are you you're just referring to cats, right? Um, or, or cats and dogs? Really? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, cool! That is really good to know. That's one I haven't heard mentioned a lot. But I'm glad you mentioned um, neuropathic pain because we see that a lot, and and probably more than than anywhere else in the on the internet because you know there's all these yeah. cats and dogs and missing limbs and people don't know you know how to treat it um gabapentin tends to be the the go-to prescription right. when somebody goes to their vet is that always successful in cats so what's interesting is um uh there was this there's we're still in the middle of this kind of like paradigm shift of not using tramadol um, as much. And so when we have the studies come out suggesting that tramadol does not work work well in dogs for pain, everyone kind of switched and jumped on the gabapentin uh, train. Um, and what we found in dogs is gabapentin actually isn't working that awesome for pain. It's definitely helping, but it's not working as good as we thought it was. But in cats, we have actually found that it does work moderately well. So that's good. I'm, I'm so happy and I'm less disappointed because it is actually working well in cats. Um, uh, I forgot where I was going with that, but <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, so so when somebody's yeah. vet prescribes it for for phantom pain, that they should feel pretty good. Absolutely, that it's absolutely. Most likely yes. going to work. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm I'm a really bad host here. We're already at the 30 minute mark. Um, I I want to ask you real quickly though, if you have time, um, what are some of the the common um, side effects that we should be on the lookout for when our when our cat comes home and and they're given these drugs? Um, what are some things that are telling us this is too much or too little medication for them? Yeah, the biggest thing that I would say is is a, con- a point of concern is uh, vomiting and, and possibly stool changes, so maybe some diarrhea. Those would be suggestive of, of the medication really not sitting well with the body um, and can, can t- potentially put your, your pet in, in danger of becoming super dehydrated. And again, like dehydration is kind of our, our worst enemy when we're um, using NSAIDs and, and other medications altogether. So I think those would be kind of my top two things. Um, I would definitely ex- expect to see a little bit of lethargy or them being kind of quiet because of some of the medications that we're sending home. Mm-hmm. Um, but after an amputation, like that's maybe not the worst thing in the world. Um, yeah. Giving them a couple of weeks to just kind of chill out and heal um, is, is okay. That is really, really good to know. And Stephen, I can't thank you enough. I could talk to you all day about this. You, you are so knowledgeable, and we're so grateful to have you here. Um, thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, Stephen, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Listeners can learn more about the work you're doing with all sorts of animals at stephensatal.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-C-I-T-A-L.com. And find many more helpful pet pain management articles, podcasts, and video interviews at tripods.com. Next time on Tripod Talk Radio, learn more about canine amputation recovery and find the best gear for three-legged dogs at tripods.com. (laughs) 
Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for more pet amputation tips from experts. And claim your free gift just for listeners at downloads.tripods.com slash podcast.